This is Joseph Clare, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Theology. Welcome to the show, everyone. George Fox Talks Theology. Very grateful to be here with my guest today, Dr. Paul Lorenzini. Paul, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's great. Our, our premise for this show, as you know, is that there is a theology of everything, although we live in ostensibly a non-religious or secular world and time, there's really a theology underneath everything because God is a very present part of his creation. Today, we take kind of a tricky turn to a theology of modernity, and I don't want to lose our listeners or our viewers right off the bat. Modernity sounds kind of scary, uh, but don't worry. It's going to make sense. It's going to enrich your life to understand a theology of modernity, and we have no one, no one better than Paul Lorenzini. Paul, is a uh, PhD in nuclear engineering, been a business person and leader in the Northwest um, for a long time. And in your retirement, uh, in some ways, you've come to this like other life as a philosopher, theologian, lover of wisdom, trying to make sense of your experience of being a modern person. And so I want to ask you how you got to the project, this book project that you're working on that we've been talking about. But could you begin sort of in the broadest strokes with your understanding of modernity in a nutshell? What do we mean when we say that we're modern people? I mean, I'm a modern girl living in a material world. You know, is that Cindy Lauper? <laughs> I was hoping you could talk I, about that song. I, I never thought of you that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is modernity, it, Paul? Well, it's a problematic word. I found it problematic. Uh, people use it in a lot of different ways. Uh, but I think in the way that you mean it and the way that it comes into the material that, uh, that I've been working on, uh, is it represents a break from what you might call the pre-modern world. So the pre-modern world was was this world that Charles Taylor speaks of as being spirit infested. Mm. Uh, we were, he describes us as being porous, as being vulnerable to that spiritual world. We saw ourselves in terms of the spiritual world, whether in society or whether in relationship to the cosmos. And the break with pre-modern, that pre-modern world, the word that Charles Taylor uses to describe it, he's got a lot of words to describe it, but he refers to it as going from porous to buffered. Hmm. And the notion of being buffered is we realized that we were a an autonomous self. We were a self that had control over ourselves. We weren't vulnerable to the spirit world. Uh, and it, it was a time of, you might call it disenchantment. Although the problem with disenchantment is it's a misused word. Mm. Uh, people use it to mean suddenly we eliminated religion, uh, but that's not really what happened. We, we eliminated the sense of the world being infested with spirits. Christianity, in fact, survived that initial round of the break with that world as we see with people like Francis Bacon and Descartes and others, mm. early scientists who, who continued to be Christian in their beliefs, but they had broken with this uh, spiritual past. Uh, once that break occurred, <clears throat> excuse me, once that break occurred, then we began to start thinking as humans in a different way mm. in terms of ourselves, 
who we are as individuals and how we relate to the cosmos. Ultimately, that led to the scientific revolution. It led to the Enlightenment. Um, And it's easy to confuse, I think, modernity with the Enlightenment. But modernity really means more than the Enlightenment. Uh, The Enlightenment was a specific period in time. When we use the word modernity, we're talking about that whole process of breaking with the pre-modern world and becoming more and more, quote, modern. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, then you get into postmodern, which is an ugly word. Uh, So I don't want to go there. Uh, Not yet. But just in general, I think modernity is a a reference to the process in the Western world where we broke from the pre-modern spirit-infested past and we became buffered from that past. We became more self-sufficient individuals. Yeah. 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 And I think as a philosophy student myself and, you know, now professor, I'm implicitly interested in these big sweeping overarching narratives of, of history, especially in the West. But I think there's applications outside the West of there's an ancient world, there's a medieval world. There's this break, which happens through reformation and revolution and, um, enlightenment and, uh, you know, sort of down to the present, that kind of making of the present is implicitly interested to those who have a philosophical historical mind and interest in the history of ideas. But how did you specifically become interested in this question apart from just the intrinsic merit of the study of yeah, past? Uh, and I think the answer is I backed into it. Mm. I sort of think of myself as someone who went to the store to buy a jar of peanut butter and he came out with a whole basket full of groceries. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it started uh, in the 70s. I was involved in the controversy over nuclear power. Uh, and I was bothered, as many people who were uh, participating in that controversy were, uh, with the, an ideological uh, tone that didn't make sense. We could understand people being worried about safety or waste disposal, those things. But why was it that uh, the Sierra Club said, we're going to oppose nuclear power and prefer coal? That made no sense. Mm. Uh, what was the deliberate exaggeration of fears of radiation all about? Mm. Uh, why did all of a sudden we see the counterculture of the 60s um, transfer from Vietnam to nuclear power? So that in the last half of the decade, uh, there were marches, there were civil disobedience, there was trespass. There was a tone to that that was more than just a public concern over over nuclear power. And it complicated the conversation about nuclear power. So people who were interested in that discussion were trying to understand what is this all about and how is it changing Mm. the way that debate is taking place. Um, And so it started there. Uh, I became interested in, in understanding what was driving that ideology, which led me to there's a connection here somehow to the 60s, uh, which led me to Francis Schaeffer, uh, which led me to Western thought, uh, which led me to the idea that perhaps by exploring the trends in Western thought, sort of the way Francis Schaeffer approaches his whole theology, by exploring the trends in Western thought, we could understand how our culture today has been shaped, and we can understand just what happened to the country in the 60s and how the culture was transformed in the 60s mm. by putting it in some kind of a framework. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, you know, when I, when I write this book, I'm not writing it as a scholar because I'm aware of my limitations. I, you know, I'm a nuclear engineer. I, I, I loosely call myself a lawyer. I only practiced for three years. Um, but I'm not a philosopher and I'm not a, a theologian. Uh, uh, and so my approach is to invite the reader uh, to join with me on a journey, mm. to, to, to travel with me as I go through this history and, and 
and see how I explored it and see what came out of it and see what conclusions we can draw from it. So that's, that's the approach. And that's sort of how I got into it. Yeah. And I, I think that that, I mean, you're not an amateur in my mind, but that sense of approaching philosophy and theology, the history of ideas as a beginner allows you in my reading of your work to give really complex, big ideas, simple, straightforward expression, which is a weakness of the academic study of things. This is not say things in a simpler, straightforward way, and therefore it's uh, not me, have impact, you yeah, know? Let me reiterate. I, I think many times philosophers don't want to be understood. Yeah, well, that's probably <laughs> so, true. So, so, so it's really hard for somebody like me to read their work and say, what does this mean? So, I, you know, I agree with you. It's a difficult. That's difficult. So if the 60s in, in the U.S. are a flashpoint of this kind of like, story of modernity. So you said there's all these different trends in Western thought and they sort of like uh, collide or overflow. I don't know what the metaphor is in the 60s. And you've, you've kind of loosely titled the book, The Legacies of the 60s for the time being, right? Yeah. yeah. And and why? Why? Um, that's there. Yeah, that's my question. Why? Yeah, exactly. Why? Uh, because I think the 60s was a, was a unique decade in American history. Uh, there are many decades where traumatic things happened. But Charles Taylor calls the 60s a hinge point, mm. meaning there was a before and an after, and we sort of hinged the culture on the 60s. Uh, and it's remarkable when you think about uh, an entire culture going through a cultural transformation in the way it looked at the world in the space of a single decade plus or minus a couple right. of years. Yeah. Uh, so I think the 60s is a fascinating period. And it's problematic to talk about it because um, if I talk to the 60s, uh, talk about the 60s to a class of college students today, their eyes glaze over. And for them, I might as well be talking about the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it's really important for me to, uh, I've got four chapters at the front end that just talk about the 60s. Mm -hmm. And my only purpose there is to recreate a sense of what it was like to have lived the 60s. For people who were there, they'll sort of get it and it'll be a walk down memory lane. But for mm. people who weren't, um, my goal is to have them step back and say, oh, I get it. Oh, mm. I can see how this decade was so traumatic that something big happened. Uh, and when you think about that something big happening, uh, we tend to focus on civil rights and uh, the war in Vietnam. Those were the big events. But there were change agents. Uh, there were political activists who were change agents. There were the Beats and the Hippies who were change agents. They were different kinds of change agents. But you needed more than change agents. You needed a supporting cast, if you will. Mm. Uh, and we had a supporting cast and an elite culture that had been preconditioned for the past several decades by an embrace of European thought. Uh, and European thought that tended to look at what America was in alien terms. Mm. You know, if you look at pre-60s America, you can think of pre-60s America as America where, as an America where the dominant culture was Christianity and science. Mm. Uh, and what we call romanticism was sort of there, but it was marginalized. Mm. The change that took place in the 60s was Christianity was marginalized and what we call romanticism was normalized. Mm. Uh, and so you have David Brooks writing his book in 2002, um, The Age of Bobos, mm -hmm. meaning bohemian plus bourgeois, bohemian meaning the spirit of romanticism. Mm -hmm. So there was a radical shift that took place. And today, much of what we experience in our culture is a legacy of that shift. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to the 60s. And so the goal that I have is to be able to uh, articulate um, just what that history was, 
how it came together in the 60s, how you can make the claim, which many people argue about, how you can make the claim that the culture actually changed during the 60s, and then talk about if it changed, how did it change, and how does that change still affect us today? Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the tenor. So I, there's a part one that's about the 60s. There's a part two that's this intellectual journey. And then there's a part three that says, okay, given all of that, what are the legacies that we live with today? And you say that there's um, these kind of three forces for cultural kind of like authority, let's say, in the 60s. And they're in conflict. And we come out of the 60s in a different arrangement. So you described them, I think, a minute ago as like, the legacy of the enlightenment, rationalism, science is really the child of that from an empirical perspective. You've got romanticism, which you say doesn't really fully come to roost until the 60s. Then you've got orthodox, traditional, historical Christian faith on the one hand, and they're in like a triangle tug of war sort of thing. And so is the 60s, you say the ascendance there, does romanticism win or it just comes into full view for the first time? Does it like kick Christianity's behind or like how, what happens? So let me recast what you just said. Um, I start my journey into Western thought and I start reading about Western thought. And very quickly, this picture began to emerge that you can understand the dynamic, the cultural dynamic in the West for the last two to three centuries. If you think of it as a dynamic between three really distinct ways of looking at the world, uh, one is the worldview that came out of the Enlightenment. Uh, this, you know, call it materialistic science. So, you know, a commitment to science and a commitment to a materialistic view of the world. Uh, a second is a, a romantic view, and a romantic view arises as we come to the end of the Enlightenment and uh, <laughs> thinkers look at the Enlightenment and they're saying something's missing here. Mm-hmm. Um, this doesn't give us a complete view of humanity. So they try to re-inject what the Enlightenment cut out. Mm. Um, and you then have Christianity as a third worldview that isn't compatible with either one of those two. Mm. Uh, it's certainly not compatible with the Enlightenment because it believes that there's a God. Uh, the Enlightenment doesn't. Uh, but it's also not compatible with Romanticism in the sense that, and Charles Taylor talks about this, in in the sense that uh, when you come out of the Enlightenment and you've got this dissatisfaction with the flatness, with the emptiness, with the lack of the dehumanizing effects of that period, uh, there's a motivation to find something new. But it, it gets caught between, well, I don't really want to go back to Christianity because it's orthodox, it's rigid, it's authoritarian, it's got these fixed views. I don't want to go there, but I don't want to go to the Enlightenment. So I'm finding this middle space. Uh, and Romanticism kind of fills that middle space. The whole Romantic movement fills that space. So then if you say, so that becomes a, a kind of a thesis, that becomes an operating hypothesis. Uh, and so then you say, okay, if that's an operating, does it work? Uh, so, so then, you know, I go into, well, what really happened in the Enlightenment? Uh, what really happened with Romanticism? Uh, what is Christianity? How do those three really look when you compare them to each other? Is there a tension between them? Can you really say that they're very different worldviews that are in tension with each other? Uh, and then if you do, then the next part is, how does that help you understand what happened in the culture? So if you approach the 60s and you say, if I take that sort of triangular look, three worldviews in tension with each other, and I say, how does that help me understand what happened in the 60s? It allows me to step back and say, well, what did America look like before the 60s? Hmm. And so that gets you to the notion that, well, you know, strong Christian presence, uh, science was certainly present. Romanticism was maybe, you know, there, but sort of like light. 
The shift that I believe took place during the 60s is that Christianity became marginalized. Mm -hmm. Christianity lost favor. Uh, and so there's this book by uh, Putnam and Campbell uh, called American Grace. And they describe the 60s as an earthquake. Mm -hmm. uh, the 60s, it, where we went from a nation where it was sort of an expectation that everybody was Christian to an expectation that you're sort of looked at with a certain kind of skepticism if you're a Christian. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what comes out of the 60s is all of a sudden this burst of all kinds of new views of spirituality. So the human potential movement, you got the Beach Boys, Mike Love becoming TM, you've got the Beatles going to, to see yogas, you got this popularity of Buddhism. Uh, and then you got uh, Tom Wolfe writing this article, famous article uh, in Forbes about the me generation. And what he's describing there mm. is this just proliferation of different attempts by people uh, to find a spiritual center in some place other than Christianity, but one that doesn't exist in the Enlightenment. Uh, mm. Daniel Yankelovich says that, he writes a book in 81, and he says the one defining feature of the post-60s period is this quest for the self. The, the search for who I am, those are all aspects of what it means to have shifted our focus and to have normalized um, what I would call this romantic way of looking at the world. Now, when I say that, one of the important ideas here, I had a conversation with a, with a good friend um, a while ago, and I mentioned that, well, you know, it's, romanticism is really important. And he looked at me and he kind of just backhanded me. <laughs> and I says, well, you know, that was something that happened in 1800 that was a romantic movement, that's passe, it's old, and a lot of people look at it that way. Uh, so what, what I have tried to do is to say, well, that's where it began. But there was a body of thought there, and it developed during the 19th century and during the 20th century, and it followed different paths, but there was a consistent body of thought there. Mm. I mean, it was in the Bohemians. You could see, you know, there's Bohemian movement in France and, like, you know, uh, uh, Victor Hugo, mm. uh, you know, 1825. Uh, and then, you you know, it begins to spread. You've got Merger with the opera La Boheme. Mm. Uh, you've got uh, people migrating to San Francisco, to, <laughs> you know, Greenwich Village, to Soho. And this subculture begins to evolve that exists all the way up to the 50s. Mm. Uh, when you've got the beats in Greenwich Village and then they go to San Francisco and you got the San Francisco Revolution and it, it eventually morphs into a hippie movement. So you've got this whole kind of subculture of Bohemians. Meanwhile, uh, in the humanities, uh, in the late uh, 19th century, you have literature and art that begins to take a hostile view toward the Enlightenment. Uh, and it starts to express the same ideas of romanticism, that there's something flawed in this mm. Enlightenment way of looking at the world. Mm. And then you've got philosophy, where you've got Kierkegaard and Nietzsche that we talked about in the class today, mm. uh, where they start exploring what is, what's the significance of saying that we're going to start looking within ourselves to find truth, which is the essence of romanticism. Uh, and so Kierkegaard does it in, in, in the realm of Christianity. Nietzsche does it in the realm of uh, the secular world. So all of these things shape the way things are when we arrive at the 60s. Mm. And what you can see in the decades leading up to the 60s is all of this thought developed in Europe. And then during the early decades of the 20th century, it began to migrate to the United States. Mm. And it centered in a cultural elite. So I referred to a supporting caste. Mm. We could not have had a cultural change in America if it were not for a strategic elite that was alienated from the mainstream culture. Mm. Uh, the elites, uh, Lionel Trilling called them an adversary culture. 
Um, uh, the elites, you know, they control Hollywood, they control the media. Mm. Uh, and when they uh, bought into, they didn't march in the streets, they didn't go to Woodstock, but there was something about what they were seeing that they resonated with in terms of their values. Mm -hmm. And that uh, Daniel Bell Harvard has this book he wrote in 1976, where he basically has this one paragraph and he says, um, the, the adversary culture has now taken control of the museums, the publishing houses, the, the newspapers, the media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And it may not completely be true, but it certainly captures a sense mm. of what a lot of people thought they saw. Mm. Uh, Ch uh, Charles Taylor refers to the 60s as a period where there was, he calls it a massive subjective turn. Mm -hmm. uh, same idea. Uh, what we think of as romanticism, a, a way of looking at the world through romantic eyes. Uh, became normalized. And so when you look at where we are as a culture coming out of the 60s, um, science is still there. Yeah. Although it's a little bit weakened now because it's getting, it, it's feeling an attack coming from romanticism. But Christianity has been kind of marginalized. Now it hangs on for a while. But what you see in Christianity is you see this constant, now generation by generation by generation, growth of the nuns mm -hmm. uh, and, and shift away from Christianity, which we still see right up to today. Right. Uh, so I would argue that the significance of the 60s as this cultural change was a change in which uh, this body of thought that we call romanticism, the spirit of romanticism became normalized. Mm. And, and you might say it displaced Christianity. Sure. And I think that's the sense of David Brooks when he wrote his book about Bobos. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, in his case, you know, he's a New York Times columnist. He's, you know, running in a circle of friends. And he makes this observation. He's sort of looking around and he's seeing these behaviors and he's saying, something's going on here. Mm. And the something that's going on is these are people who, they, they're continuing to live the bourgeois life, you know. Financial security is important. Job is important. But they've embraced a bohemian lifestyle without calling it that. Hmm. And he says clearly, uh, by bohemian, he means the spirit of romanticism. Sure. So he's making that basic same right. observation. Right. So you have the ascendance of the Enlightenment through science and its version of rationality and its dominance through technology, the application of scientific right. understanding through technology. So we've moved into this more materialistic view of the world. The materialistic view of the world, which you're calling this one end of the triangle, this one corner, it fundamentally has no, um, it makes no claims about the transcendent spiritual or immaterial world. It just says here, all we need to know about truth is what we can know here through reason, through empirical observation. But the problem is there's huge terrains of human experience around morality and meaning and significance that don't jump out of a material understanding of the world. In fact, if we just went with a purely scientific understanding of humans as animals among other animals, right, we wouldn't have a lot of what we sort of take for granted in terms of moral and political life together. So then you have this recovery, uh, you could call it a reenchantment effort of romanticism without the baggage of Christianity, which has authority, yep. exclusivity, ultimate truth claims, this God, we just want to keep it at the level of the individual and yeah. of the self's quest for selfhood or meaning or something like that. So, yeah. So if you take the, that thought and then you uh, put it back <clears throat> in this sort of triangle, if you will, uh, what you see is... Uh, that we wind up with a worldview that is committed to science and a worldview that embraces romanticism, and they are in conflict with each other. Mm, Take okay. Christianity out of the picture. 
they are in conflict with each other. So that's what C.P. Snow observed in 1957. He, he writes this, delivers this lecture on the two cultures. And he says, we've got these literary intellectuals and we've got this natural, these natural science and they don't get along. Mm. There's a mutual gulf between them. They don't understand each other. They don't even like each other. Mm. Uh, and so people heard that lecture. It really resonated. People knew something is going on here, but nobody knew what it was. Mm. No, nobody put their finger on just what it was. They were forcing kids in the secondary schools in, in England to study his two cultures. But what was he really talking about? Mm. And so many people said, well, the answer here is that we just, you know, we need better multidisciplinary education. And if we just could take scientists and teach them literature, uh, and if we could just take literature, you know, people in the humanities and teach them the second law of thermodynamics, which was C.P. Snow's answer, it'll solve <laughs> this problem. Uh, well, what uh, wasn't realized is that it, there was something deeper than that going on. Mm. So at the end of the decade, at the end of the century, Richard Rhodes writes this book about mm. the history of technology in the 20th century. And he says, C.P. Snow observed this difference and Regardless of what you say, I looked for people in the, in, who aren't in the technologies to appreciate technology, and I couldn't find them. So, so there's this sort of dichotomy there. So how do you explain that dichotomy? So to go back to the scientific worldview, Kant was the one who said, we live in a world with two kinds of realities. Mm. There's the phenomenal reality, which is the world of the senses, what we feel, see, hear, sure. and so forth, taste. Yeah. We can study that world with science. But there's another realm of reality that extends beyond that. He called it the noumenal reality. Mm. And he said, we don't know if it exists or not. I can't tell you that there's a noumenal reality, but I can't tell you there isn't one. Mm. And for Kant, this was really important because he was trying to deal with the issue of free will. If you live in this totally materialistic world, you find that it can't explain free will. And he wanted an answer for free will. Uh, and so by opening up the possibility of this noumenal reality... Uh, it made it possible to start thinking in terms of of a free will. Well, scientists come along in the next century and they see the possibility of a noumenal reality as a backdoor to let Christianity back into their science, which they don't want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so led by one of the pivotal figures, a guy named Ernst Mach, um, they take the position uh, that if you're going to pursue science, there is no noumenal reality. Mm -hmm. Now they don't, they don't, claim that science proves there's no noumenal reality. They just say that science means there's no noumenal reality. Mm. That morphs. So that becomes the Vienna Circle in the early 19th, early 20th century, morphs into what I would call today this commitment to a scientific worldview, which you can read in Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, or Michael Shermer's The Moral Arc, or Edward O. Wilson, where he talks about consilience, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett. There's just a whole slug of of really thoughtful, intelligent people who buy into this worldview, that's fine. But then they, ex they morph and they say, and scientists proved there's no noumenal reality. Mm. Science didn't prove there was that. I mean, that's nonsense. All science does is it, it operates in a world where there is material and it makes an assumption that there's no noumenal reality. Mm. And so they basically wipe that whole possibility of a noumenal reality off the charts by just declaring it not to be. Mm. with no basis other than a philosophical choice to do it. Well, so the romantics come along and they're, I mean, if you put it in these terms, the romantics look at the world and they say, wait a minute, <laughs> you've defined a we're world that is something. totally phenomenal. Yeah. And that's not all there is. Mm. There's more to it than that. We don't know what it is. Right. You know, there's something that you aren't grasping about the nature of humanity when you wipe that world out. 
Right. And so they react to the enlightenment, counter-enlightenment, if you will, yep. by, by claiming that there's more to reality without necessarily defining what it is. Right. So this is to fundamentally to be modern is to live in this paradoxical intractable, intractable dilemma, as you say, the two storied existence. I, th I think of the patron saint of our age in my mind has to be St. Steve Jobs who embodied this, I think perfectly, <laughs> right? He was the, at the cutting edge of scientific research as applies to technology but he was open to all sorts of spiritual thoughts and paths. I mean, he only did a year of college at Reed studying calligraphy, right? And was open to learning all sorts of different philosophies. And that embodies this sense of like, we have one side of our life, which is the hard stuff, the science stuff, the technology, there's truth there. But then there's this other side where meaning and value and purpose, but that is just a very individual and endlessly relativistic affair in which you just have to find your own way. How does Christianity respond to this dilemma. So that's my yeah. question is like, do we have anything to say to the modern um, person? Yeah. So first of all, I would say your characterization of modern modernity is a good one. It's, it's it, unlike the pre-modern world where everything was simple. We live in a complex world where we've got these different ways of looking at the world coming at us. And one of the things we tend to do that is really awful is, is we tend to glom onto one mm. and we draw the conclusion that that's the right one. And only smart people see that, and everybody else who doesn't see that is kind of dumb. Uh, and and it really doesn't make for great, uh, you know, social policies or great uh, respect for each other. So you know, one of my goals is to paint a picture of each one that says a respectable, honest person, intelligent, serving their higher angels can can find themselves in any one of these three sure. uh, camps. <laughs> uh, so early on, I'm reading Francis Schaeffer. Hmm. And Francis Schaeffer is describing these two ways of looking at the world. And he says, there's an intractable dilemma. You can't bring those two together in a single worldview that's coherent, that makes sense. Hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, nobody ever told me that. <laughs> uh, and I go off, I'm studying philosophy, I'm looking for this, I can't find it in any place. Uh, and then I run across Snow's Two Cultures, so he seems to be observing something like that in the culture without necessarily naming it. Uh, and then I run across a book by Richard Tarnas. He wrote it in 1991, The Passions of the Western Mind. It's a great book. Uh, and he gets to the middle of the book and he says the same thing. He says, out of the Enlightenment, you have two streams of thought, Enlightenment, Romantic. And what comes out of that is a divided worldview. Mm. You've got two pieces that don't fit together. Man becomes divided against himself, he says. Mm. And so I'm thinking, aha, here's someone who's not a Christian who's saying this. So that adds credibility to Schaefer. Sure. Uh, but I'm still kind of, you know, looking for somebody else. Uh, so in 2002, I'm on a cruise to Alaska. See, this is the serendipity journey part of the whole thing. <laughs> uh, so I'm on a cruise to Alaska. And uh, unlike most people who are out having fun, I'm browsing a bookstore. Uh, and I run across this book by Simon Critchley, uh, part of the Oxford series, very short introductions. Uh, and I turn to page nine and he's got this passage. He says, we re we disenchanted the world in the enlightenment. We try to re-enchant the world, but when we do, we find ourselves torn between scientism, which leads us to become beasts. So what does he mean by that? He means if you pursue this totally materialistic view of the world, we lose all of our humanity. We don't have any access to free will and so forth. Uh, we don't want that. 
and so therefore we try to humanize the cosmos is his word, mm. which is his way of describing romanticism, mm. uh, it, which leads to obscurantism, which in which case we all become lunatics. Hmm. Which mean which he's so he's referring to the notion that once you start to look inside yourself, that becomes a source of truth. You tell you untether yourself from <laughs> right. any sense of objective knowledge. Ultimate that reality. doesn't that doesn't work either. Right. And so he says it's an intractable dilemma. Hmm. So now I've got these different people all saying there's an intractable dilemma, and I'm finding myself saying, well, why is there an intractable dilemma? Hmm. I don't feel that there's an intractable dilemma. Uh, you know, I'm a scientist and I can enjoy art. Uh, I, I have scientific friends. They enjoy art. Uh, if I went up to my friends and I said, you know, you're a divided person. There's something in you that's, you know, they look at me like, I'm, you know, their eyes glaze over and they want to go get a drink someplace. Uh, so it, that doesn't really, people don't know what you mean. So then you have to break it down and say, well, what is going on? Why do they think there's an attractable one? Well, the answer that that I've come up with is it's intractable because on the one hand, you've got this um, scientific view that excises noumenal reality and says mm. it doesn't exist. And so that isn't going to work with anybody who says, I'm going to trust that there's some noumenal reality out there. On the other hand, you've got the romantic who has redefined truth as being totally personal. Mm. Uh, they don't want to accept orthodoxy. They don't want to accept science. Uh, and so they're basically taking a position that all spiritual paths lead to the same God, even when they're contradictory. Mm. So there's this Harvard professor who says it in the best way I can think of. He says, unless you can realize that both Islam and Christianity are both true and both false, you're a poor historian. This is a Harvard professor, mm. Professor Emeritus. And I read this and I'm saying to myself, how can somebody even think that? I mean, this is sort of my definition of lunacy. Mm. I mean, you know, they are contradictory worldviews. They can't both be true at the same time. Right. But that's where you find yourself mm. when you occupy this romantic space and you start trying to um, say, well, it's, it all, you know, comes together. To say, well, it doesn't all come together at the same place. Sure. It doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and so um, they become incompatible because they've adopted a worldview that doesn't that doesn't that's that, that you, where you can't occupy a middle space and sure. be coherent on either side. Sure. So then the Christian answer says, "Well, wait a minute. What's the solution to this? Hmm. The solution to this is to say to the scientist, if you just open yourself to the possibility of a soul, to this other reality, yeah. you can't prove it, but open yourself to that possibility. Suddenly, these other, uh, you know, aspects of reality become possible. Hmm. And if you say to the romantic." Let's try to go back to, to Aristotle's law of non-contradiction. <laughs> right. let's, let's try to go back and say, well, uh, there's a law of logic that says two mutually contradictory truth statements can't both be true at the same time. Mm. Kind of basic stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and if you just say, that's a, that's a premise I'm going to operate with, and I'm going to apply it in the spiritual world. Right. You know, what they want to do is they want to say, well, that applies to science, <laughs> but it doesn't apply in the spiritual world. And I say, why? Sure. You know, uh, and, and if you then say, okay, there's a truth in the sp uh, spiritual world, suddenly now you can take both of those views and bring them together. And then you can begin to ask the question, and this is, I think, the Christian answer. You can begin to ask the question, if I do that, if I say there's a noumenal reality, and if I say there's a single truth out there, then what is it? Right. Uh, and, you know, there are other answers to that. You know, Islam is an answer. Judaism is an answer. Uh, maybe something else. But you can at least start to have the conversation. Mm. Uh, and then when you start to have that conversation, the Christian would say, as you look at these different op options, these different sort of ways of looking at the world, 
what's the truest to my life experience? Mm-hmm. What, what matches most closely uh, the way I live my life and what I know to be true about mm-hmm. myself and about the universe? And the Christian would argue that if you start that process, it would lead you to Christianity. Yeah, so that's really helpful. So the movement of from Christian orthodoxy to romanticism is something like the authority of the spiritual life moves from being outside of you and some external thing to being fully within yourself. So it's an individual and fundamentally relative affair because everyone's on their own quest, their own journey. Right. Orthodox Christianity says that's not true. You're not the sole arbiter. It isn't all about the self's authority. I think that's a good encapsulation of what it means to be modern. It means to have fully tried to reckon with yourself as the authority um, on all things, including morality and spirituality. Where is authority in an Orthodox Christian perspective? So if it's not within the self, where, where is it? Yeah. So authority is a baggage laden word. So if you read, Charles Taylor, for example, and some of these other... And Charles Taylor, by the way, is this great Canadian philosopher. Yeah, I'm sorry. Ben and McGill, for a long time, wrote a famous, famous book yeah, called he, he, he Secular Age. He wrote a book, the, the 800-page book that you made me read. That's right. Thank uh, you. Yeah, and, you're welcome, brother. Yeah. And and it's a it's it's probably, it's highly respected. I, I rely on him a lot in my analysis. You understand it better than I do, so uh, <laughs> I'm glad I assigned it to you. Well, uh, uh, and it's a book that a lot of people will say... You really ought to read Charles Taylor, but nobody's going to sit down and read this 800-page book. So I sort of believe that by going through it myself, I can help make it accessible to mm-hmm. people who haven't gone through that journey. So that's Charles Taylor. Um, so um, now I forgot where Authority I was is a baggage laden yeah, word. Yeah, so, so Charles Taylor's Catholic, uh, and, and his view, he views authority in a very negative way. It's mm-hmm. the authority of the church, and he feels bound by that. Uh, and other people will sort of look at Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, and they'll say, uh, it's really bad because, you know, you're bound by some external authority. You can't be your individual self. Uh, and my response to that is, uh, no. My response to that is, what an Orthodox Christianity does is he goes on a search, or she mm-hmm. goes on a search. That search leads to this belief that there is a true God mm. who exists as a truth that's external to me that exists whether I feel that he exists or not. Uh, and uh, and I'm called upon to submit to that God's authority. Mm. I choose to do that. I, it's not something anybody forces on me. I choose to do it because I believe he is the God of the universe. Uh, and so authority is something that's an option that the Orthodox Christian chooses to accept because that's the nature of the truth that the Orthodox Christian has discovered. Right. Yes. And so you have... The sense that uh, you slipped that in there very nicely is that it's about the the human being coming to wrestle with the question of whether or not there is a true spiritual view or religion in the world. Christianity makes exclusive truth claims about it's one God and it's this God's presence in Jesus Christ. And it brings you to the point where you say, use your whole mind, your reason, and what you know to be true about reality, and then also bring your own soul and subjective experiences of meaning and value and bring both of those as part of the search to ask whether or not the authoritative claims about this religion, which are centered in scripture, are true, true in both senses, the objective and the subjective. Is that right? Yeah. And it's, and it's a search that involves the head and the heart. The head and the heart. Yeah, it's it's a search that requires you to use your brain and your reason, 
and your and your your feelings and your intuitions. And it's when those two come together mm. that you can feel comfortable that you found a truth that really works. Yep. I mean, for me, if if my head tells me something, but my gut tells me it's not true, I have a problem. Right. And likewise, if my gut tells me something's true, but it doesn't make any sense to me, I have a problem. So the search that we all go through, I think, in our spirituality is a search for a truth that is true, uh, where our head and our heart can come together. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is most um, sort of uh, painful about the cult of the self, as I think you call it somewhere, the religion of the self, which is the kind of spirit of romanticism that's still with us, which says there is meaning to be found, but it's up to you to find it. There's there's a purely subjective element of of value and meaning to be found, um, but yourself is the sole kind of arbiter. I feel this very much in my own life. I feel it with the students that I work with. We feel caught between um, the two kind of twin views of the spirit of romanticism. One is that Yourself is this deep, true, hidden, inmost you that's there to be discovered. And if you can just like get in touch with it, you know, get past the false consciousness and, you know, the crowd and the people pleasing, there's this true self there. But on the other hand, the same view is the self is really for you to construct. It's for you to make. It's for you to invent and to reinvent. And you're sort of caught between, am I looking for the true self or am I creating the true self? I feel like those are both the views of the spirit of romanticism. Yeah. And, and you know, your word self-created is the right word. We create the self. And, and the problem that you get into when you start following that path, at least from our point of view, uh, is that once you start creating yourself in that way, you're untethered to anything higher, anything mm. external, anything objective, anything outside yourself. Uh, and so what's to say that when I come to this sense of self that, that makes certain truth claims, mm. you come to your sense of self and you make different truth claims. I have no basis for being able to say that either one of those is true. So I wind up saying both are true, which, which gets me into this conundrum of... Um, you know, both Islam and Christianity are both true at the same time. Well, they're not. And and so to, to, to break the tie, if you will, to be able to uh, follow that process internally, which is a legitimate process. It's mm -hmm. an honest process. But to follow that process, it has to be tethered to something outside ourselves so that there's a, a basis for all of us to then say, um, there's a way to decide whether this thing I've created as myself is really true or not. Right. What is that apologetic for Christianity look like today that helps people move beyond this intractable dilemma? So it uses both, uh, yeah. what is it, the language of rational scientific thinking and the subjective well, romantic thinking? I think one of the things that comes out of looking at the culture through this lens of these three ways of looking at the world is that you've got Christianity as one node, if you will, and you've got this node of science that attacks Christianity. And you've got this node of romanticism that attacks Christianity, and they make different kinds of attacks. Yeah. And so the Christian who has an apologetic has one apologetic that responds to the attack coming from this scientific-based community, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and one apologetic that responds to the romantic. So the, the response on the, the humanist side, the, the, the scientific side, is a response that says, um, um, A, the Bible is consistent with science, that, that, that what we believe 
is defensible in a scientific world, mm -hmm. and B, um, if you hold to what you believe, uh, you're believing things about your yourself that don't make any sense. Mm. What do I mean by that? Uh, well, the classic problem that uh, it goes all the way back to the Enlightenment, it's, it's the problem that Kant was obsessed with, is the problem of free will. Mm -hmm. You have no answer for free will. Right. Uh, Tom Wolfe wrote an article in 1996, sorry, but your soul just died, as he's exploring where neuroscience is going. Mm. So if we uh, construct a world that is entirely material, it has, there, there is no sense of a reality beyond the phenomenal world, we find ourselves being forced to buy into yeah. determinism. Predetermined meat machines, right? We, we're, yeah, Schaefer says we become machines. Yeah. So you say to yourself, well, you know, I mean, I'll read some people who will say, well, that's passe. You know, once we got past quantum mechanics, that changed everything. No, Einstein was, was committed to a materialist, to a deterministic worldview. And Einstein has a passage where he will say, uh, anybody who believes in science must be a determinist. Hmm. So then you you go to modern people like Edward O. Wilson or Daniel Dennett or Sam Harris or 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 people who are Dawkins. really advocating this yeah. worldview, and they try to find different ways to get around it. But in the end, they yeah. are all admitting that they understand that their worldview forces them into this box of believing hmm. that I'm not making any choices. I go to the forest and I think I'm going to the forest, and I I had no choice in going to the forest, you know. I was, it was determined before I was born that at this point in my life, I would go to the forest. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, you know, determinism says if you go back to the year 1900 and start the clock over, everything would happen exactly the same way. Mm. So you can say you believe that. You, know, you can look me in the eye and say, yeah, I think I'm a determinist. And I look you in the eye and say, I don't believe you believe that. <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody can live that way. Right, you don't live that so, way. The response, so the response to the, the, the advocate of science is, A, Christianity makes reasonable sense, and B, it's true to who we are. Mm. It's true to our humanity. Yeah. So on the romantic side, I, I'm just giving you my thoughts. Please, here. I, yeah. I'm, no, no. I'm not an oracle on this stuff. No, no, you are. You're the oracle. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, the romantic side, you, you find yourself in the same place. Mm. Um, so who who would be uh, archetypes? So Shirley MacLaine, uh, Joseph Campbell, Celestine yep. Prophecy, uh, they all say different things, mm -hmm. but they say they say the same thing in different ways. Yeah. Uh, so they will say, for example, we all have the divine within us. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm not God, and I haven't met anybody who is. Uh, and, and yet they ultimately get to the conclusion that, you know, you're God and I'm God, and it's a matter of finding that God person in us. Mm. That's what we're searching to become. And my reality says, you know, that's really nice if you believe that, but I don't know anybody who's God. Mm. <laughs> and I don't think you really think you're God. Excuse me. Uh, uh, they, they take uh, sin, morals, good and bad, uh, and... It's no longer, uh, uh, we don't do bad things that create moral guilt. Mm. When we do things that are against the norms of society, it's a, it's a problem of therapy. Yeah. Uh, so it moves from uh, a register of morality to a register of therapy. And the yeah. way you deal with that is that you take people who are, you know, suffering from these bad feelings and you, you run them through a round of, of therapy to say, to show them you're really okay. You just are thinking bad. So I, I participate in a prison ministry. Mm -hmm. I really love it. Kairos is the name of the ministry. Uh, and, and we go to the, to the prison as a bunch of Christians. Uh, and, and, and when we go, 
we don't go and say, you guys are bad people. <laughs> they know they've done bad things. And we don't need to tell them. They're already suffering, just like we suffer. Yeah. You know, we yeah. go in and we don't say, you know, we're no different than you are. We're in this together. Mm. Uh, and 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 what we offer them mm. is not therapy. We don't come in with some therapists uh, that we're dragging along behind us and say, now once you get to this point, once you go in this closet over here and you can begin your therapy session, mm. we say no. There's a God who died for your sins. Mm. There's a God who loves you. And that God loves you so much, that God is ready to forgive you. Mm. And when they get touched by that God, and then when they get touched by that love, and when they get touched by that sense of feeling that they can be forgiven, they break. Mm. And you watch these hardened criminals, 30 years, murderers, rapists, mm. break down to their knees and start sobbing. You know, I'll see these guys and, and they'll start sobbing. Mm. And they'll say... Um, I was in a circle with one of these guys, and he started, he, he broke. And one of the guys in the circle sort of looked at me, hey, we're not going to tell anybody in the yard. Like, you know, we're going to protect you because you did this in private. <laughs> and he gets this kind of really aggressive look on his face. I don't care who you tell, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then he says, I haven't felt this good, and I can't remember when. Sure, yeah. You know, there's a release that goes on. Right, and it's not a moment of... Uh, this is an opportunity for self-realization for you. It's a moment that there is a real God. There's a real way the world is. Yeah. You've in you've infracted. You've sinned against that, and this God has come in love they, and made they, a way for you to be yeah, healed. They're, they're touched by God, and there's a truth there that says we all know. Nobody can tell me that they've lived a perfect life. We all know that sure. we have true moral guilt, mm. and. Christianity offers a way to deal with true moral guilt that comes from a loving God. That is the most powerful apologetic yeah. Christianity has. So that's different than what you get when, sure. when you hear Joseph Campbell say, yeah. well, there is no good and evil because whatever you do is right and you know, wrong for somebody. I think the real apologetic always, I mean, from the New Testament on, it's like first John, you say you love your brother or sister, but you, you know, you turn away from them in their need. So how can you actually love them? And by the way, how could you love the God whom you can't see if you don't love your brother or sister who you can't see? Right. So there's a sense of like yeah. practice and physical, tangible manifestation of divine love, which is always the truest apologetic. And yet God has given us minds to explore, you know, all of his creation and reality and to think and reason about it. And that's why I love what you're doing in your project on a theology of modernity, really. And actually what you've said about this triangle. So to be modern is to kind of find yourself caught between the total objectivism of the scientific enlightenment view of the world and the total subjectivism of a romantic approach to spirituality and morals. Christianity has a way of binding the subjective and the objective, these two approaches, the truth, the inner experience of the individual with this objective external reality it makes me think differently about the apologetic of say like a CS Lewis or of the inklings in Oxford taken as a whole, because on the one hand, Lewis's great apologetic work in Mere Christianity or The Abolition of Man is about using rational argumentation to show the way a purely materialistic scientific worldview is going to actually cut you off from things that you take for granted, like consciousness, morality, free will. But then on the other hand, as Tolkien maybe knew better than Lewis, we are hungry for a re-enchanted world. We want to live within a bigger story, which transcends the the smallness uh, of our disenchanted lives. I mean, look at the perennial interest in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, right? It wasn't 
a Nietzschean romantic return to mythology as an alternative religion, but it was a re-enchantment of a big story, which ultimately opens up into the bigger story of God and scripture, right? So they're working on both angles there of a kind of rational apologetic and also an imaginative apologetic. Does that yeah, so, resonate? Yeah, so absolutely. So let me take it back to the 60s. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I've got a, a whole chapter on the beach and the hippies and Haight-Asbury. Uh, and, you know, it's really easy to take a window in to Haight-Ashbury in 1967, the summer of love. You know, kids are acting out. There's all this weirdness. <clears throat> Tour buses are going through the area so, you know, staid people can look, you know, behind a window in the safety of a bus and say, look at all those weirdos out there. Uh, and and it's very easy to say, these guys are just wacko. Mm. Uh, but a, a different way to look at it is say, no. These kids are spiritually hungry mm. and they're seeking some answer to something that they don't have in their lives. What accounts for the fact that seven or eight girls seeking peace and love could be drawn to a madman like Charles Manson? Mm. What accounts for that? They're seeking something and they thought they found it in him. But what you find is that when you seek that and you find it in sources that don't have a spiritual anchor, it leads to, to some kind of darkness. That's certainly what they mm. what they experienced. There's an essayist, Joan Didion, mm. uh, very well known during the 60s. She, like many, took a tour through Haight-Asbury and she wrote an essay about what she saw. Mm. Uh, and it was a really good essay. Uh, and people who read the essay, rave reviews, I felt like I was there. I was walking through the area. And after she got done, she said, first of all, she said it was one of the hardest essays I ever had to write. Mm. And second, she said, it's the only essay I ever wrote where everybody loved it and nobody got it. Mm. What she meant was she was trying to describe what she called kids that were not on an extended panty raise. That, that, that's her, not on an extended panty raise mm. raid but kids who were pathetically looking for something that wasn't there in their lives. Mm. And somehow in the transfer from one generation to the next, the sense of any sacred order had been lost, which is a little bit of a message for Christians in the 50s, said, what did you do wrong that somehow sure. this belief yeah. you claimed you had didn't get passed on to your kids? But nevertheless, um, the significance of Haight-Asbury, the significance of LSD, the significance of the mm. 60s to me is it's an expression of a generation that that was searching for something spiritual. So guess what? It's no surprise. Mm. They come out of the 60s and there's this burst of new attempts to find spirituality. Right. That's, a, yep. that's what you would have expected to see. Yeah. The thing I love about your work and has helped me is I'm a child of the children of the 60s, right? So you're describing my dad who grew up in San Francisco, mom in Seattle, met in this valley 1972 and I, their wedding picture is like them both with hair down to their behinds <laughs> and in some Sufi, you know, mystical Islamic ceremony. And, you know, they've gone through their own journeys and, and have found Christ. And I grew up in sort of the aftermath of that, but you are describing what gave rise to the kind of cultural and spiritual pulse of a whole region, which is still very much with us and helping me see how Christians have, um, we have a responsibility to point to the truth, but in love and to find ways to build bridges into a culture. So in the same way, you'd be sensitive as a missionary to a totally different part of the world and culture and religious outlook. We have to be missionaries in our own context and sensitive to the cultural sort of yeah. context, right? Yeah. yeah. And in fact, let me go back to the notion of how do you, what's an apologetic in this world? 
Um, Luther has this famous passage where he says, uh, unless you're dealing with uh, people where they are today, uh, where the real action is taking place, where the battle rages, you're not engaged. <laughs> right. uh, and and uh, mm. so where does the battle rage today? Mm. When Paul went to Athens and spoke in the Agora, he was dealing with the Greeks at that time and what their mindset was and what their what mm. their thought was. Right. That's not what we deal with today. Mm. Uh, and so uh, uh, a, a, an initial challenge we have is how do we understand mm -hmm. what people in our culture think? Yeah. How do we understand what prompts somebody to believe in this view over here or this view over here? Uh, believe it with all their heart, with great intelligence and believing they're serving their higher angels. Mm. Uh, where are they coming from? And if I want to speak to them about these kinds of issues, how do I talk to them? Yeah. I can't talk to them unless I know what they believe with a sincere effort to understand yeah. what they believe. Yeah. We're coming to the end, Paul, and I wonder if you could just hazard, uh, put your historian hat on and try to hazard a guess on what the long-term consequences of this historical moment we're in. We've clearly been in a weird place for a couple of years. And in the same way, the 60s, I'm sure we're going to look back and see 2020 as some other yeah. you know, bookend of something. But what's where Where are we? What's going to come out of this historical moment we're in for the church, for Christians? Do you yeah, think? I, I wish I could be the great seer of seers. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I think my perspective would be... Um, we are in a period that is going in, in the wrong direction. Mm. And by wrong, what I mean is um, there's a loss of civility. Uh, it, we see it in our politics. We see it in our media. And the loss of civility expresses itself as um, caricatures of people who don't agree with us, demonizing people who don't agree with us, no attempt to really understand what other people think. Mm. Um, Charles Taylor encourages us to find what he calls a Jamesian space. Mm where we feel the crosswinds of other points of view. And unless I can really feel, you know, you, I may not agree with you, but unless I can really mm. get to the point that I understand the pressures that you're feeling and maybe the weaknesses in my own point of view, I haven't really gotten to the point that I understand. We don't strive for that. We don't look for it. We don't seek it out. We don't do it in our politics and our pundits don't encourage politi politicians to do it. And the media doesn't encourage, they participate. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's got, uh, my belief is, that trajectory has to change. And so then I ask myself, what role can Christians play in changing the trajectory? Uh, and that's where I have to say that, you know, as you look at the culture and you look at the rise of the nuns and you look at this marginalization of Christianity, I think Christianity, Christians can blame themselves for that. Hmm. Um, because I think that they've led with moral litmus tests. They've led with this passion to you know, create a society that's a Christian society, and they haven't led with the most powerful apologetic of all, which is the one I experienced in the prison, which is that God loves us. Mm. You know, God loves us, and and that's the starting point. That's a powerful message. Now, it's not soft love. It's not empty love. It's, you know, we don't go in and say, God loves you, you know, who, you know, uh, kumbaya. God loves you, and God loves you because there is a real God who is there who mm. loves you. Right. Uh, there's a real God who's there who, who, who acknowledges sin exists and, and you know, gives you a way to get out of it. So it's not empty love. But that's, that is, to me, the most powerful apologetic Christians have to offer. And then you can begin to talk about why it makes sense. You can begin to talk about yeah. how science fits in. Um, and and when, you, when you think of it in those terms, you're not thinking about it as a matter of changing society. That's the wrong picture in my view. Mm. 
Christianity is a personal thing. Hmm. So you change it one life at a time, one life at a time. Hmm. And when you change a life and a person enters into that life, we believe they enter into life where the Holy Spirit enters into them. Hmm. And the Holy Spirit begins to work on them and change them. And I don't go to them and say, here's the moral test you need to live by. I trust that the Holy Spirit will do that. That's what the function of the Holy Spirit is. Hmm. Uh, and so to me, the Christian role is to change lives one at a time. And as lives change, Christians can then influence society and deal with these issues and make society a better place. Hmm. That's great, Paul. Thank you so much for joining me today. That's a feast to think about. Thanks for joining us on George Fox Talks Theology. Stay tuned and we'll, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream things on your phone or computer. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu slash talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks. 